Warning, All Things Crime is a true crime production that may contain violent or disturbing material. Viewer or listener discretion is advised. She said, you know, back in the 80s and 90s, it was all about finding finding evidence and finding, you know, and determining it based on legality, you know, doing doing things what was legal. Right. Now you have to do things, of course, within what is legal, but also what is scientific. Because the crime scene has gone from just trying to learn exactly what happened at the crime, but also based on evidence, based on the scientific evidence, how it happened. And yeah, that, that's true. So it, it touches everybody. So uh, attorneys who don't handle major cases, now they're getting DNA cases in their lap because it's for a property crime. Patrol mm-hmm. officers, you know, you, you can't send a CSI person from a crime lab to every crime scene, but now, you know, maybe a patrol officer has to swab a steering wheel or they right. have to pick up evidence. So they have to be trained on at least the basics, contamination prevention, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that's always changing. Cause like you say, the testing is more and more sensitive. So all of a sudden it wasn't good enough to have gloves. You had to have a mask and then, you know, on and on, we have to be more and more careful, but right. there are certainly people who are minimally trained, you know, who are in, in the chain of evidence with DNA sample collection, cause it's just so prevalent. Mayhul, hey, thanks for coming on, man. Well, hey, Jared, good to see you. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and congratulations on this new video cast. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, it's been, a, been what, a couple of years since we've seen each other? Yeah, I think uh, I last saw you at Loyola Law School when you were giving a presentation. Yeah, I came down to L.A., uh, showed you a little bit about the MVAC, and uh, so how's law school going? Uh, well, I'm no longer in law school, actually. I gave it a shot, but <laughs> juggling that you know, going part-time in the evening with my practice, I, I decided I couldn't do both things well. So uh, it's still a dream of mine. And uh, uh-huh. it, the time I was there was a great benefit. You know, I learned some legal writing and how to think like a lawyer. And um, But what I have been doing is I'm still working with the Loyola Project for the Innocent, uh, mm-hmm. working on post-conviction DNA and wrongful conviction cases. So that's one way of kind of keeping my, my legal mind sharp and still, uh, you know, working in, in those uh, arenas. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the Innocence Project uh, folks are, are doing some good stuff. I'm actually going to be talking with uh, Greg Hampikian from the right. Idaho Innocence Project um, next week. Yeah. So that, that should be really interesting. But, you know, you said something, um, you know, thinking like a lawyer, you know, I'm not sure you right. want to go that far, but, you know, <laughs> definitely keep your, your DNA analyst uh, hat on. Well, you know, and the motto of my company, though, is bridging science and law, because ultimately the two sides have to be able to speak, right? All of the science is great, but we're not doing it for research magazines and to pat each mm-hmm. other in the back and to cover cool things. The bottom line is what can be argued in a court of law based on the evidence? So right. um, that's really my passion now, um, working as a DNA consultant, kind of working in both worlds and trying to bring them together. Uh, trying to educate everybody. So it's not just my clients who are inmates or defense attorneys, but you know, I might educate the prosecutor as well. They might not know the shortcomings in their evidence. Uh, Certainly need to educate the judge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, I, I, I actually had a 
kind of a conversation. I think it was on LinkedIn with a guy out of, um, I want to say he was out of the UK and he was talking about actually trying to merge uh, lawyers and DNA analysts and, and that whole, uh, you know, between the science and the law. And I was just like, dude, there is no way that, you know, people that are really good at law are going to be also really good at the science. You just can't do it. I mean, there's no, there's that's true. Much. I mean, the, the old joke is, Hey, you went to law school cause you didn't want to study biology and physical chemistry <laughs> and, and all of that kind of stuff. So, I mean, to your point, I, I thought maybe the ultimate way I could contribute is, an attorney with a DNA background, and that still may happen. But mm-hmm. I got to tell you, there are times I'm sitting with either inmates or defendants, uh, I'm sorry, inmates or defense attorneys who have a very serious case. Maybe it's a death penalty and they kind of don't know the first thing about DNA. And I'm like, well, maybe that's the most important role for me is to stay as that DNA consultant mm-hmm. and help these attorneys along. Yeah. Well, and, and on the same sense, I, th- I think, um, uh, you know, the scientific community can't also be experts in the law. I mean, if things just change yeah. too fast, especially the science nowadays, you know, DNA. Uh, well, in fact, why don't you talk a little bit? I mean, since you've been involved in, um, you know, all, all the way back to where you first started um, till now, you know, how much has DNA changed? Well, it's uh, it's unbelievable how much it's changed. And of course, the, the courts never keep up with the science. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things, uh, new techniques on the horizon that are cool, but they're just not ready yet for prime time. But if you look at the rate of change of DNA over the last five years compared to the 15 years before that, it's just astronomical. Um on all ends. So it could be that the testing's quicker. So there's more cases in the justice mm-hmm. system. Mm-hmm. Um, used to be DNA was reserved for the most serious cases because DNA took a long time to analyze. Uh, it was more expensive, more labor intensive, all of that. Now, of course, property crimes or, you know, all sorts of things, even like a DUI case where there's a question of the authenticity of that blood vial. Uh, mm-hmm. Now DNA is used pretty regularly. So Given all of that, I think the analysts can barely keep up, much less right. the the judges and the attorneys. So um, right. there's definitely a need for you know bridging bridging those sides. Right. So what 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 is this the saying uh, jack of all trades, expert in none, or something like that? <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. I just think I just think if people try to do it all, you know, then they'll just end up sucking at everything, and that's. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that really well, be a shame. So yeah, or thinking, you know, it, you know, like maybe an attorney had a DNA case four or five years ago, and maybe he or she was the office's expert, but okay, well, this case has probabilistic genotyping. Uh, this case has the MVAC. It's a whole different situation. And right. not to mention that um, whose DNA it is, is obviously typically the most important question. But because we're looking at things that are trace DNA, we don't know the body fluid. We don't know how long it's been there, when it got there. Right. Um, now, a lot of times the bigger question is, well, what's the significance of that? Mm-hmm. How did it get there? Was it from direct touch? Was it transfer? Is it old DNA? Is it background DNA? So context now is, is really a huge issue. Right, right. Yeah. The, as, as the sensitivity of DNA in general increases, you know, you, you tack on like the MVAC is going to collect more. Right. It's going to collect more of everything that's there, including people that don't have anything to do with the case. Yeah. yeah. Um, you, you start with that and then you move into the lab processes it being so much more sensitive than it used to be. 
And then even with the, the software at the, at the end, it's still difficult. But, you know, like he said, the, the ability to determine how old the DNA is, how degraded it is. I mean, that's stuff like that is just absolutely fantastic. It's just amazing. And to me, that, that's, that's the whole, the whole purpose of, of what I said earlier is that, you know, trying to keep up with all of that stuff and trying to keep up with law, you just can't do it. I'm Mike Morford, and I've been researching the Zodiac case for years. Zodiac, just the name. It sounds sinister. It inspires fear. The fact that a serial killer would give himself this moniker is disturbing. He would go on to taunt police by sending letters and codes to newspapers for years. And the attacks, they were something else altogether. If you were a young couple in a secluded area, you could easily be a target. And it wasn't just shootings on dark lovers' lanes. Zodiac would even attack with a knife in broad daylight while wearing an executioner-style hood. After a while, Zodiac changed tactics, and even lone cab drivers weren't safe. The Zodiac killer terrorized the San Francisco Bay Area and then vanished, but he left a lot of clues behind along the way. Clues that we're going to examine closely on the new podcast, Zodiac Speaking. New episodes of Zodiac Speaking come out every other Saturday starting March 13, 2021. Subscribe today wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a single episode. Exactly. And then, you know, of course, DNA is scientific, but some of these things in terms of transfer, um, they're they're not an exact science. You know, they depend on a lot of factors. So when you're asked to give an opinion in court about maybe transfer or something like this, I mean, it goes back, you know, it's like uh, direct exam, cross exam, redirect, recross, the judge asks questions. And it's like, right. well, depending on this, depending on that, what are some of the uh, contingencies? Yeah. So you have to, you really have to know your stuff, which means the lawyers have to know their stuff. The judges have to know their stuff. Right. Because right. DNA is, is, can be oversold very easily. It still has mm-hmm. very strong branding. Just the fact that a defendant's DNA is found on a piece of evidence or at a crime scene automatically, you know, an an uneducated jury or, you know, somebody not familiar with forensic science is going to, they're going to put a lot of significance on that. So Mm -hmm. it's up to the, um, the advocates on either side to really explain though what that means and let them know that, you know what, it's not that hard for someone to leave DNA behind. It's not that hard for it to be contaminated and all of these other um, things that you have to think about. Right. Right. So let's go back a little bit. How did you get started in DNA? I um, studied biochemistry uh, back in Chicago at the University of Illinois, mm-hmm. and um, I originally thought I was going to go to med school, and okay. I found out that 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 sort of course wasn't for me, t- taking that much time. Um, so I was really interested in molecular biology and DNA in my studies, and I didn't know how I wanted to apply that. I didn't see myself just sitting in a, in a research lab, just seemed kind of boring to me, mm-hmm. and um about my junior or senior year. Uh, I, I, just, I don't see you and your personality sitting in a lab very long, man. Well, yeah. A lot of people ask me, hey, do, do you miss being in the lab? And it's like, well, now that I'm free, no. you know. <laughs> but so yeah. I, I was at a career fair at the University of Illinois Chicago and the Illinois State Police was there. Uh-huh. And they were talking about, hey, you know, DNA analysis in a crime lab. It was pretty early. This was, you know, probably early 90s. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't even know that that was done really. Um, and mm-hmm. I assumed that, Hey, if you're working in a police crime lab, you must be a sworn deputy, which I found not the case. So I became interested because here was a practical application of the studies that I enjoyed. Um, mm-hmm. but you were doing something cool. 
-hmm. you weren't necessarily stuck in a laboratory because you could go to court and you could go to crime scenes. So that's what initially got me hooked. And then about a year or two later was the OJ Simpson case. And I was just fascinated with some of the things you and I discussed about the fact that you kind of have to know the law and science, you know, and I looked at like Barry Sheck and I'm like, I didn't understand, like, was is this guy a DNA analyst or how does he know this, you know, being an attorney? So all of that interplay in court really, really fascinated me. So ultimately, when I graduated in 1995, uh, my first forensic gig was in San Bernardino County, California. So I uh, mm-hmm. you know, made the uh, migration out to California and I've been here ever since. Nice. Well, it's interesting. I, uh, <clears throat> I interviewed uh, Cheryl McCollum out of Atlanta yeah. uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she said something that I thought was just really interesting where she said, you know, back in the eighties and nineties, it was all about finding, finding evidence and finding, you know, and determining it based on legality, you know, doing, doing things, what was legal right now you have to do things of course, within what is legal, but also what is scientific because the crime scene has gone from just trying to learn exactly what happened at the crime, but also based on evidence, based on the scientific evidence, how it happened. And yeah, that, that's true. So it, it touches everybody. So uh, attorneys who don't handle major cases, now they're getting DNA cases in their lap because it's for a property crime. Patrol mm-hmm. officers, you know, you, you can't send a CSI person from a crime lab to every crime scene, but now, you know, maybe a patrol officer has to swab a steering wheel or they right. have to pick up evidence. So they have to be trained on at least the basics, contamination prevention, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, th- that's always changing. Cause like you say, the testing is more and more sensitive. So all of a sudden it wasn't good enough to have gloves. You had to have a mask and then, you know, on and on, we have to be more and more careful, but right. there are certainly people who are minimally trained, you know, who are in, in the chain of evidence with DNA sample collection. Cause it's just so prevalent. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't think most people understand uh, how much DNA you're actually breathing out with, with each breath or every time you touch a substance, you know, how much DNA you're actually depositing in there. And, well, you know, it may not show up on one of these tests, but then again, it might. Well, the example I use, you know, if there's a question about, well, how, how probable is transfer? How does it work? You know, when I review the work of uh, DNA crime labs, you know, I get all of, all of the dirty laundry as well, you know, contamination records and all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think most people would be surprised how often an analyst contaminates evidence with their own DNA. Now, that's, that's despite them wearing a mask, wearing gloves, following all the protocols. Are there some bad analysts? Sure. But I don't think it's so much that. I think it's a testament to how easy it is to contaminate your DNA because you don't need that much of it to show up in a test, um, particularly if you're using sensitive sampling like the MVAC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, you compound that with um, some some people aren't trained, but even if they are, um, you know, mistakes happen. You might actually, yep. you know, if, if it's hot, especially, you know, some of the, some of the places down South, you can just be sweating profusely and, and just accidentally contaminate something. But well, um, yeah, I mean, in the laboratory, you, you've got nice pristine conditions and you're probably uh-huh. climate controlled and all that, but you can't control the weather when you're swabbing <laughs> evidence that, you know, you can't bring everything right. back to the crime lab. And, and I had that too, because I, I go to police departments, evidence lockups and swab things, and it's not always the optimal, you know, circumstances. So I'm, I'm changing my gloves like a, you know, crazy person 25 times and, you know, right. just 
trying not to sweat on it. Uh, but of course, now, you know, we're at the point where anybody who may have touched the evidence, be it a crime scene investigator, police officer, CSI, typically the crime lab has their DNA profile uh, on file so they can cross check and make sure it isn't uh, accidental contamination. Right. Yeah, it's crazy how many times uh, I've had a, a, a buckle swap taken from me. I, I'm not sure how many crime labs around the world have my DNA profile, but uh, <laughs> right. I definitely can't turn to a, 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 any kind of a career of crime because I would get caught really fast. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and now you have to worry about if your third cousin is doing like genealogy or something. So <laughs> we, we all could be tied to a crime, you know, within a few years very easily. Right. Well, I guarantee my, my relatives would turn me in pretty fast. <laughs> Yeah, so, especially yeah. when you get to like a third cousin, they, they don't have any allegiance to you. You don't even know who they are. So yeah, well, you know, they, they might just do it for the uh, reward. But <laughs> right, you know, one thing that I that I have to mention is the importance of the investigator. You know, once once we start talking about the actual DNA, and if someone's DNA shows up at a crime scene and they had nothing to do with the crime, right? That's just one piece of it. It doesn't automatically mean that you know, they are going to be a suspect or, or that they're going to be uh, convicted of the crime. That just means that they have to be, a, you know, there's a reason that their DNA showed up. Well, and, and this is the problem, you know, a lot of times a crime lab, once they get an association with a known person, like a, a defendant, they may stop their analysis. Now, could that be bias? Maybe, but also, you know, crime labs, they got to crank out widgets, you know, they mm -hmm. are severely backlogged. So unfortunately, they can't, treat every case like it's the case of the century. So right. it goes either way. I mean, it could be that, hey, you, you get the result that you, you think you wanted to get and you stop, or it could just be a, a timing or um, bandwidth issue, really. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yeah. I, I, I think law enforcement in general, and including crime labs, are some of the most underfunded areas of, uh, of the entire government. It doesn't matter what level it's at, whether it's city, county, state, or, uh, or federal. It's just crazy you know, the demands on them, and yet they don't have the funding, they don't have the personnel to, to, to do it right. Um, but like you said, you can't, you can't just test everything, you know, no, it, no. it's, it, it has to be go through a rigorous process to determine what would be probative and what wouldn't. Um, but it's interesting that the entire process, um, in fact, let me let me just have you answer this question instead is, yeah, you know, if you if you were to to be talking to someone that's not involved in the whole DNA and investigative process, um, give me the steps that would typically go through include and, you know, and the crime lab is going to be in the middle in there. So you got the crime and then go from there all the way to uh, say, you know, the actual conviction or exoneration, well, whatever is at the end. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the personnel at the crime scene, they have to be able to uh, recognize what could be DNA evidence. And that's not so easy anymore. It's not just a um, vaginal swab or a pile of blood or anything obvious like that. You now have to be creative. So you, the crime scene investigator really has to meet with the detective and try to figure out to the best extent possible, where could there be probative evidence to sample? And that may be blind swabbing that might be using visualization, visualization techniques such as fluorescein or something like that to, to find it. Mm -hmm. um, then you have to, you know, uh, package it correctly so that it's not spoiled so that there's not contamination. Mm -hmm. You have to mind, be mindful of the chain of custody. Um, 
you know, I, I'm looking at a lot of post-conviction cases that are 20, 30 years old and some of the procedures that were followed were, were less than stellar and there becomes right. real questions in the chain of custody. Um, so, all right. So now we, we get the evidence to the laboratory and, you know, the analysts will look at it. The first question is, well, can I identify a body fluid? Is there blood? Is there semen? Is there saliva? And mm -hmm. if not, how, how and where am I going to sample this? And that's going to take some, some common sense. Uh, mm -hmm. a, a great example is, let's say that there's a, a ligature that's found, like a piece of rope. Um, if you were just to run a swab around the whole length of the rope, you're going to get a pretty bad mixture. Mm -hmm. So if you think about the mechanics of it, the person doing the strangling is probably touching the rope on the ends of it to get leverage. So that's where you'd expect to find predominantly the, the offender's DNA. Uh, in the middle would be where it would be in contact with the victim. Right. So, you know, a classical way to break down the sampling is break it into three or four quadrants because you know you're going to get different relative proportions of the mixture. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe the tool that you use, you know, I mean, I, I know a lot of crime labs don't have the MVAC, so they're not necessarily getting all of the DNA that they could. As a matter of fact, I had a post-conviction case where it involved a rope and uh, they swabbed it, not, not even in the right place, I would say. And then we actually used an MVAC and, and got a little bit more information. Hmm. So, okay, so now- um, That actually happens a lot more than uh, what people would think. Thank you for listening to All Things Crime. We are so grateful for all of our listeners. If you enjoyed this, please give us a positive review so other people can find it as well. Have an amazing All Things Crime Day. And now the weather. Expect partly cloudy skies with an excellent chance of maximum refunds. Wait, that can't be right. Oh, but it is. Who are you? I'm April. And we could see refunds raining down all tax season with people switching to Tax Act. Tax Act? The tax filing software that makes it easy to file for less and get more. New forecast. It's sunny days ahead for everyone using Tax Act. Always happy to brighten your day. Tax Act. Switch to Tax Act today and start for free. See taxact.com for details.